0: We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz, here on Beyond the Title.
1: Graduating from Huddersfield University in 2011 with a first-class degree, writer and comedian Rosie Jones began her career as a junior researcher for the inclusion department of Channel 4, before bursting onto the stand-up circuit in 2016. After undertaking a screenwriting degree at the National Film and Television School in Buckinghamshire. Jones reached the final of the 2016 Funny Women Awards. Just a year later, she made her debut on Channel 4's flagship panel show, 8 Out of 10 Cats, which catapulted her into the elite group of fresh new comedians. Beyond comedy, Rosie has also had cameo roles in BBC dramas Casualty and Silent Witness, before landing her own Channel 4 adventure series, Trip Hazard, My Great British Adventure. I caught up with one of the most exciting comedians on the circuit to talk heroes, hazards and her hopes for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Rosie Jones. So, like most modern comedians, you took the university route. I've interviewed a whole range of comedians from a variety of different backgrounds. Some have come up through the club circuit, while others have adopted the academic approach. What did university offer you, which you then used as a springboard to your success?
2: Great, great, she I'm trying to say that succinctly, but I've always loved performing. I think because I'm a massive attention seeker. And at A-level, I did drama and theatre, and it was... My secret dream to become an actor. But I knew if I went down the drama school route, um, the roles for disabled actors weren't there. Actually... They're still not there right now. Yeah. So, yeah. I decided to be a sneaky bugger and study English because my thinking was English is such a very course if I came to that. End of it and thought, no, I want to do something else. English would help me do that. And growing up, not seeing myself on telly or disabled people in the media at all. I thought a better way to make a difference is to study English and then go round the back and work in production. So, yeah, there weren't disabled rules yet yeah, there weren't disabled people on TV shows or panel shows. So I thought, if I get an English degree and get intelligent, I can make a difference. And I did. And I worked as a researcher um, behind T V shows for five years and I loved it, but there was always that that person at the mm-hmm. back of my head going, You want to be on telly. you want to be on stage, so that is when I slipped into stand-up comedy. But I have no regrets because, actually, that degree and those five years working behind the camera yeah. have given me the tools, the knowledge, the experience to know what to do in this new comedy world.
3: Yeah. I will be... <laughs> okay get hm hey yes Oh
1: just out of interest how did you get on with drama A level?
2: <laughs> oh my God I'm so glad you watch I got Full marks for two years. Um, So when I went to school, you couldn't get A stars, but yeah, I got an A. So, big drama (laughs) queen!
1: Uh, okay, the next question I'm about to ask—I prewarn you—these are Josh's words, not mine. Just keep that in mind, okay? Uh, Francesca Martinez and Lawrence Clark remain the contemporary pioneers of disabled people in comedy. How important are these figures in raising awareness that spastics can be funny?
2: Are you sure that wasn't yours? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's nothing to do with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a voice, it's him.
2: <laughs> um, well, yes, I've been incredibly important. And growing up and in my teenage years, people like Sugar and Lawrence were the only disabled people I saw on TV and this is not a bad thing it is not but when I did see them on TV they were always talking about their disability and I think that's because they had to like they were the only disabled person on anything and they were kind of expected to be that disabled one talking about disabled matters and Thinking about where we are 10, 20 years on, I really hope we've moved forward and we got a lot more brilliant disabled comedians out there, like lots of voice guys and Christmas Island. And I I really hope that. Like, for example, me, when I'm on a TV show or a panel show, I talk about my disability if it comes up, Mm -hmm. if I want Mm -hmm. to. Yeah. And that's a shift. Yeah.
3: That
2: yeah. I yeah. sometimes do a TV show or a stand up set, and they don't even mention my cerebral palsy because I hope mm. that they now book me to be a comedian and not (laughs) the disabled one. (laughs) So, Lawrence and Francesca for sure paved the way so that people like me can now come on and go, yeah, I'm disabled but there's also a million different over parts mm. of me. And I hope that the newer comedians after me can also build on what we've started. And hopefully... In 10, 20 years, there'll be A, a lot more disabled comedians, but B, disabled comedians who just never mention the disabled because it, it isn't necessary.
1: Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah, it's not. you <laughs> Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah Josh is a firm believer of that too. And mm. like as soon as you mention it, like that's it. It's it's just brought up, isn't it? And no one can steer away mm. from it sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 And then there's the too much focus on it when there doesn't need to be, just like you said. It's completely separate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And then also, it's up to us. Whatever we talk about it, the power should really be yeah.
3: us. <coughs> and I tell you what you should well, you should be, a, bit of a yeah,
1: Josh was just saying as well, uh, <laughs> just because he's disabled, it doesn't make him an expert on it either.
2: Yeah, 100%, 100% and also we cannot speak. For all disabled people, we do speak for us and our
3: experiences. Okay. <laughs> How are you? Yeah. Um, only, uh, who are you only
1: Yeah, Josh uh, just, just said, you know, like everyone's got their own like concept on disability and who who are who's Josh and who Yourself, like to tell people and to dictate people, like, oh, this is how it is, you know, for us, yeah,
2: and, yeah, hundred yeah. yeah, percent. Oh my god, I could speak about this yeah. for hours.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you'll miss out on your carbonara later. If you yeah,
2: do. <laughs> when did that? Oh my god, carbonara. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, another relevant question coming up now. How important is it for comedians like yourself to make the light of diversity in the 21st century?
2: Oh, well, again, that's a good one. Um, it's important and it's not. So it's important because... We still live in a world where um, society is a little afraid about diversity and (laughs) I still come across people every day who patronise me or feel sorry for me So me making light of being disabled is so important because I want to get the message out there that I'm just like everyone else. I should not be treated any differently. Mm -hmm. So... For sure, comedy is a great way to break down barriers and to go with just human beings. But, on the other side, you can't make light of serious things like during the pandemic at the beginning six in ten people who died from covid had a disability you can't make light on the fact that if you're disabled In the UK, you're twice as likely to be unemployed. I can't make jokes about that. I don't want to take that lightly. However, there's a way um, to use that in my comedy to make sure people are aware that in the UK at the moment under this current government it is shit to be disabled. So comedy and that double-ended thing of I can be light and go out there and say being disabled is amazing you can dribble on everyone that is quite light and flipping, and just yeah. me saying the joy in disability but if I have a longer set or a longer show, I'm able to bring that darkness in for a moment and go, I get verbally abused in the street regularly. I've missed out on jobs because of how I speak. I get patronised on a daily basis and those are messages that society needs to be aware of in order to change and be better and be more accepting Um, but it's how to say that and then finish on a little joke so I really hope I use that lightness and shade in order that your average audience member would leave my show and go, oh, great, I've laughed for 56 minutes. My belly absolutely hurts. But actually, yeah, I didn't know how bad it is for disabled people right now. So you're laughing and you're learning.
3: Yeah. I was just going to go off to the end of the world. And then we'll read uh
1: Josh just wants to ask something, but he doesn't want to go off two subjects, and you might look at him and think he's mental, but. <coughs>
3: 'm uh
1: Josh is a bit of a budding comedy historian, and he was just wondering if you didn't if you knew anything about the writer Johnny Spate.
2: No, no, I don't
3: want to
1: say. He wrote till uh, death, uh, he wrote till us uh, do part.
3: And, and...
1: at the time with the, the way he wrote the programme but uh, obviously he was trying to do it in a satirical <sighs> way uh, in regards to discrimination
3: uh, uh, dude.
1: to that now, that sort of show, would there be a similar reaction? Would there be backlash?
2: It's interesting because actually I had to watch two dead videos a few years ago and I get that and it's interesting that that's Alf Garnett character is the only racist person in the show, and actually, when you analyse a lot of the jokes, they are out. It's like nobody is agreeing with them. <laughs> But maybe it's a personal opinion. I, although I understand that, um, it never sat right with me. And I, even though it's clearly a character, I... They didn't want to listen to a character who said
3: mm. things
2: like that. So, for sure, if a programme like that happened today, it might be satirical and it might be incredibly further and nuance, but my concern would be the group of society who don't understand that nuance mm-hmm. as in um, to today was part there would have been a certain proportion of people who enjoyed it because they agreed without And I think if you make a show like that again, although it might be trying to do the right thing, I would fear that it would encourage more hate. Yeah. If you look at the mm. country we live in right now, mm. there's mm. a lot of people who wouldn't understand that one's, and they would just get on board with like mm. hate so it may, um go in our opposite favour. It's like the persona I play on stage is me, but it's a lot more confident me, it's a lot more Set you me I'm a bit of a bully on stage because right now I think we need diverse characters to be the main character and to own it and to go, don't you? Fucking death feels horrible for me because I'm cool and sexy and I'm so sexual. I own you. I can take, (laughs) even though you're a white, straight, able bodied man, I can take you down and I can make. Let all room of people pity you because I'm in control. Yeah. And I think yeah. you need more characters yeah. like that right now to switch people's thinkings. Um, I think that it's a lot more beneficial than say a 2 for the part-type show, that because we comedy nerds we understand that new one. But I don't think the majority of the country would.
3: Yeah, agree.
1: Josh agrees. And, yeah. and uh, consider me petrified. I might have to leave.
2: Without <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I'm> <laughs> you. <laughs>
1: You secured a researcher role for Shadow 4. How important was this in getting you comfortable with the disciplines of television?
2: Oh, so important. And I was able to work on a lot of panel shows for all channels. So I did eight out of ten cats. Would I like to you? and all the brilliant Harry, Harry Hill panel shows. And that was so important because it meant that I was by the cold face and knew how panel shows worked, and knew how they set people up and book people and knew how studio data worked and then I knew how the edit worked. So it meant that when I started going on shows, I didn't have those news because it was an environment that I was already incredibly comfortable with. And now that it's not comedians against production, really the producers are on your side. And they want the comedians to come out as the best and the funniest. So I feel that comedians who don't have experience when it's their first time on a panel show, they're a little bit intimidated and a little bit quiet because they worry that they won't be funny. And I've unfortunately seen it loads of times that a brilliant comedian comes on, says a joke, the audience don't go for it and then they go in themselves and uh, they're quiet for the rest of the show. And you can't do that because actually the reality is if you tell a joke and uh, the audience don't laugh, that won't be in the show. That'll be caught. Yeah. So then it's up to you to try again, give another joke, and if you relentlessly pop out four, five, six jokes, three or four will land. Three or four will get great reactions and that's all the producers need in the edit. So when it comes to telly, the audience just see that everything you say is... So, it's little tips like that that I learned from being a researcher. So, oh, and also, people, being a researcher means that everyone I work with. In those five years, and now producers and execs. So basically, when I go on the panel show, I have a lovely time because the producers and directors and floor managers, they're all my friends. Yeah. They're all people they used to work with, so I think people find that annoying because people are like, shit, we need to get Rosie into make but to walk those five minutes, she's bound to... Come across eight of her friends and talk away. <laughs> Basically, I can't go anywhere on a TV show without having a good old to <laughs> <laughs>
1: It was around this time that you toured with stand-up comedy. From talking to other comedians on the circuit, despite being a supportive community, the open-mic circuit can often be extremely unpredictable and soul-destroying for many comedians. How did this boisterous audience react when faced with a figure like yourself?
2: Um, It's interesting. Starting out, um, I... Always make sure that I start in my set with four or five lines. So, for example, my old opening line was, as you can tell from my voice, I suffer from being in <laughs> and it's lines <laughs> like that that really helped me for a number of reasons. One, they're very quick and as a slow talker I couldn't make my opening joke look because I would lose the crowd immediately. I needed to make them laugh very quickly. Yeah. But also, those quite. One-liners meant that they could get used to how I speak. So I could do quick joke, quick joke, quick joke, quick joke. Quick joke. And by then, they knew I was funny they knew they didn't have to be awkward around its ability, mm-hmm. and they could understand my speech. So, after four quick jokes, the audience would then go with me if I told a longer joke of a longer story so when I was on the open night circuit I had that routine and what's interesting now is I don't need to do that as much Because when I go on stage now, people seem to know me. They don't feel that awkwardness as much. But I've still got to do it to a certain extent. Um, And then... George, what now I think about the open night circuit? I was pretty relentless when you think about the fact that at the time, I was still working in telly, so I was still working 9am to 6 PM on a panel show, and then four, five times a week, I would then go out and I'd do a gig for no money to about four people, mm-hmm. but I did that to build up my stamina and to hone who I was. So, would I want to go back to the open night circuit now? Absolutely not. (laughs) But I needed that. I needed that challenge and that relentlessness. In order to become a better comedian.
1: You made your panel show debut on eight out of ten cats. How daunting was it to be surrounded by sharp comic minds like Jimmy Carr?
2: Yes, it it's very sharp. Um it was daunting, it was scary. But like I said before, luckily I'd worked on 8 Out of for nearly a year. So I knew Jimmy, and knew the show, and knew the producers. And it, I sound like an arrogant prick. But I really didn't feel super nervous because I knew that we filmed for three hours for a 40-minute show. And I knew that the edit would be lovely and out of it, Any panel show, Mm. I am so glad that was my first one because they really looked after me and it felt like a special moment to be on a show that I'd worked on a year previously.
1: the first time I was aware of your work was on the Dave panel show Hypothetical when speaking to other comedians on the subject of panel shows a certain amount of care is given to ensure everyone gets the opportunity to contribute to proceedings to what extent do you need to make extra effort to ensure that your contribution is heard
2: well it really depends on the show and the host so someone like Jimmy Carr is in my opinion the best host out there I don't know how he does it but it's always aware that They haven't spoken for seven minutes. They're looking like they want to say something. And if I ever do a panel show with Jimmy Carr, he will always, always, always say, Rosie, what do you think? And it gives me the chance to say a joke. Other panel shows, not <clears throat> the week, are harder to do that too because they want the week was grown in an environment that was very masculine and very competitive so when i did mother week it was very hard to get in because everyone written and. Um, Five pages of jokes. So mm. then there's that awful feeling of seven comedians have all fighting to tell their joke. So uh, it's just about allowing space for everyone and allowing the conversation to open up because a show like Hypothetical is one of my favourite shows to do because you don't have that competition. It's more of a conversation. Um, And personally, when I watch a comedy show or a panel show, I don't want to see comedians going at each other and vying for their spots. I prefer when somebody tells a joke and then the other comedian laughs and builds on from that joke. So it can be hard, but luckily I'm very loud and when I need to, I'm very aggressive, so <laughs> I make
1: myself yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, in, tw- in October 2021, you were at the centre of a bizarre sequence of events when you appeared on BBC One's Question Time. Unlike most people, I wasn't so much outraged, but confused as to what the issue was. On reflection, what was your take on it? Yeah.
2: So I got abused for going on question time. And a lot of the abuse was about my disability and my appearance. Oh, also my gender. So they threw me being a woman in there as well. And it confused me too because i have gone on question time the year before. And I got a sprinkling of abuse, but not to that level. Um, and I don't really know Why I got that much abuse? I think it's because Question Time is a political show. I went on there and gave my political opinion and it doesn't surprise you that I'm very left I vote for Labour I always have so I went on that show and I think I was very liberal and very left-leaning and some right-wing people Uh, disagreed with me which is fine everyone's open to their own opinion but instead of challenging what I said or saying I don't agree with her they took the cheap easy dirty way of resulting to abuse. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've seen it time and time again. A key one last year was the Football Euro final of when we were winning everyone was celebrating but when we lost that penalty shootout everyone resorted to racism mm-hmm. and that's a horrible thing about society right now if somebody is sad or angry or doesn't agree with me. instead of coming to me with a healthy challenge, they resorted to what I look like and what I sound like. So, I think that's what happened, but it didn't upset me. It was just more of a, we're better than this. We should be better than this. (laughs) And actually, it made me more determined to get out there and speak my opinions because it just highlighted all the narrow-minded people in the country.
3: <laughs> you <Hey. laughs> y <laughs> e <laughs> So but I'm still tell about what is not more i
1: yeah. So Josh was saying that if um, I as if like a couple of years ago, maybe there was a shift in you know how people were seeing things. And uh, but like with the football, for example, the whole you know the racism row keeps on going on. Take the knee became a huge thing, still is, and if anything, that's brought up even more discrimination and more hate. And it's divided people again when it was supposed to obviously do something positive.
2: Yeah. God, there's still a lot to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not enough hours in the day to talk about it. <laughs> it a, uh, looking back at your career, what's been your proudest achievement?
2: I think a few years ago, I performed at Wembley Arena, and that was, that made me so proud on so many levels. Firstly, to go out there and to say, Hello, Wembley! <laughs>
3: like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> dreams, yeah. and also it was very special for me because my mom and dad came, and my best <laughs> friend. So it was the um first big thing that I did where all my love were there and they could really see me achieve something properly brilliant in the comedy world so yeah that is still my proudest achievement
1: brilliant and um, Josh always finishes off with this question so, uh, apart from going on a lovely long walk in a moment, what's next for Rosie Jones?
2: Oh, just more of the same. I feel like it's cliche, but I'm living a bloody dream. Um, and <laughs> I just finished writing my second children's book. So that'll be out in August, and then more gigging, more TV shows, and then hopefully next year, the big one, I think can go going on a big UK tour. So that'll mm-hmm. be really good. Yeah. More of the same, and I'll be a very happy lady.
3: Yeah.
1: Is that your first tour? Will that be yeah. your first big UK yeah. tour? Yeah.
2: I've, I've supported people. I've supported Nicki Kuma. Joe Lysett, Josh Wooding, um, but I haven't ever done my own one, so yeah. that'll be
1: great <laughs> fun. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Do
3: you know where you're going yet? Yeah.
1: Do you know where you're going yet? Any specific... Um, uh.
2: Basically, I'll go wherever my (laughs) age (laughs) can me. But yeah, it'll be all over, so that'll be great fun.
1: Will will you add the Isle of Wight to that list? Any chance?
2: Yes, of course! (laughs) And
3: (laughs) when you... Yeah,
1: who knows uh, if you do come to the Isle of Wight, we may be, uh, be able to do this in person and have a chat in person.
2: I, I would love that. I really, really love that.
3: Yeah.
2: I, Hopefully, beginning of next year, I know why in person, Yeah. will we'll spend hours putting the
1: water right. <laughs> Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other, else? <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much for your time today.
2: Thank you, and I hope you have a lovely day.
0: Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.